0: This is Come and Listen, Jewish Food for Thought. I'm Hannah Kapnick. And my name is Alyssa Kapnick. Today we're talking about language and law,
1: and the language of laws, and the laws of language. Each are a product of cultural and political evolution. And each are a kind of roadmap of society. Language and law say something about who we are as a people and who we were. The idea here is not to solve the great mysteries of language or law, but to enrich the conversation. This is a museum for your ears.
0: We need structure, and we need a sense of right and wrong. We need a way to say that everyone who lives within these bounds understands the limits and constructs of our world. Language is a great example of this idea.
1: Each language comes with its own distinct set of laws. And without those laws, languages just don't work. I can speak to Hannah because we both understand the rules of our common language. We agree on word order, grammar, past and future conjugations. Commas, for example, can dramatically change the meaning of a sentence. With a comma in this sentence, let's eat, Frank, and without. Let's eat, Frank. In one sentence, you're planning to go to dinner. In the
0: second, Frank is dinner. In the whole of the Torah, there is not a single punctuation mark.
2: Initially, is the manuscripts that we find are just the consonants.
0: This is Tzema a scholar in the world of Ta'amei Hamikra, who receives his doctorate in Bible studies at Hebrew University in Jerusalem.
2: There's no vowelization. There's no Masoretic notation. There's no punctuation. In the earliest manuscripts, there's not even breaks between words.
0: Masoretic notation is a system of markings which comes from the Masorites. These were Jewish scholars near the end of the first millennium who developed the notation system for the pronunciation and syntax of the biblical text. Before the Masoretes, the Torah text was a single stream of letters. Imagine, if you will, hundreds of thousands of letters strung together without breaks. And thousands of years later, we have essentially the same document, except now there are gaps between the words. While there are spaces between words in the Torah scrolls that we read from, there are still no punctuation marks.
2: And so we see a gradual process of elucidating the text, because if there are no breaks between words you really need to have a specialized knowledge in order to understand and be able to read the text. And We see, uh, from uh, more than 2,000 years ago, a gradual process of making the text more accessible to readers.
0: By now, there are many editions of Hebrew Bibles with the Ta Mea written in so that anyone can see how the Torah is meant to be read.
2: Just like in English... Like you have commas, periods, semicolons, colons. They help give a rhythm to any particular sentence to make it more understandable. Here is where punctuation and music are intertwined because there are only really four grades of punctuation using ta me kra there, there are full stop, there's half stops, quarter stops, and eighth stops. You'd only really need then four or five signs, um, and you have like twenty signs, and so why do you have so many? Obviously here we have the musical element.
0: We don't just read the Torah, we sing it. Every word has its own musical notation. Music is a key element for communicating the importance of what we're reading because there are only four degrees of punctuation. This word is a setup for the next word. This word connects to the next. This word ends a phrase and stop. End of sentence or section. This is grand and special and has its own melody that occurs only four times in the entire, Tara, verses. This tune happens all the time, and the text is probably not very exciting. And all kinds of things in between. There are times of year and certain songs in the Hebrew Bible for which we use different melodies for the same markings. For example, switching from major to minor key for Torah reading on high holidays, or for singing the 13 attributes of God when God reveals God's self to Moses. In the Torah's record of the Exodus from Egypt, the Israelites sing the Song of the Sea, in which there are intermittent verses that have special melodies, again different from high holiday tunes. The typical Tameha would sound like this. But in the Exodus from Egypt, When the sea split for the Israelites, the same Tameha are read like this. Different Jewish communities around the world and within the United States use the same stop patterns, but there are different traditions of how the markings should be sung. The trick is that the ta don't only change how the words are sung, but the placement of the marks controls how we parse
2: sentences.
0: These tiny black marks on the page can change the meaning of an entire concept in the Torah. Here's Tamach again.
2: So there's a, a famous example that leads to different interpretations by commentaries about the destruction of Amalek in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25.
0: Amalek is a tribe of people described in the Torah as the group that will always rise up to try to kill the Jews.
2: The Israelites are commanded, remember uh, what Amalek did to you when you left Egypt, that he ambushed you on the way and killed the stragglers... Um, and then it, part that's in contention is where it says, and you were tired and did not fear God. So there's disagreement as to who did not fear God.
0: The placement of this punctuation mark changes the relationship between the Israelites and God, and determines whether Israel's aggressors were playing a divine role in punishing the Israelites, or were acting in a way divorced from the divine. The punctuator may well have been continuing on a tradition, but the placement of the punctuation still bears a political and religious message. Ta'mayamikra means literally tastes of what is read, or reasons for what is read. The translation says a lot about the function of the marks. They're supposed to guide us, to give us a stronger sense of the words.
1: I've never heard Torah readers refer to these markings by their Hebrew name hamikra. I've only ever heard them called by their Yiddish name, Trup. The word trop likely comes from the Greek word tropos, which means turn, direction, way. In English, when we say something is a trope, we mean it's a figure of speech in which words are used in a sense different from their literal meaning. It's possible that trop wasn't originally meant to point to truth, with a capital T, but to a theory, a metaphor, a parable. The text merely points us in the right direction, gives us a taste of something rich and meaningful, but it doesn't offer everything. As a child, I started out going to a Jewish day school, and then I went to a weekly Hebrew school. Our dad read Torah at our synagogue nearly every week, and we didn't really talk about the details of the Torah, where it came from, or why we consider it so holy. I used to think that the Torah was one solid document handed down from God to the Jews as the Word. The idea was that the Torah was given to Moses, and he let everyone else copy it down as well, and eventually we put that into book form. Now we all keep those books around on our shelves just in case we need a reference or to study a portion for one of our bat mitzvahs. At some point I realized that it may not have been Moses who introduced the Torah. After all, he did die in the fifth book. I don't remember exactly when my cynicism set in, not until college I don't think, but at some point I went from thinking that the Torah was from God word for word to considering the possibility that it was probably just an incredibly complex literary text. Something between mythology and history, a collection of parables, and a 2,000-year-old instruction manual for living a Jewish life. To be honest, I don't really know what to think of the Torah. I still believe at some level that rejecting the Torah as the truth means rejecting Judaism. I live in the murky water between acceptance and rejection of the Torah, and the
0: incredibly long list of rules
1: that Jews are supposed to follow. Despite growing
0: up in the same house, I think we have really different core questions about Judaism. I didn't think about where Torah came from, it just was. I had a few weeks in college where I stressed over the divine origin of Torah, but the question of origin feels irrelevant to me. Torah itself is relevant, and that's what matters. To accept or reject, therefore, is also irrelevant. In the 12th century, the Jewish philosopher Maimonides conceived of what has since been codified into the 13 principles of faith. Number 8 says that the entire Torah, now in our hands, is the same one that was given to Moses. The 13 principles were basically ignored by Jews for hundreds of years, but this 8th principle has come to be associated by many with authentic Judaism. If you're really part of the Jewish project, then you believe that the Torah we have today is God's word as recorded by Moses on Mount Sinai and is an unchanging document. All law directly evolved from or was passed down orally in conjunction with this fixed document. It sounds like this idea dictated Alyssa's early sense of the origin of Torah as a manual for how to live a Jewish life. After speaking with Tammach, we know that this document we hold in our hands is not exactly the same document. At the simplest level, we've added spaces. And even if we have all of the same letters in the same order as the earliest record of Torah, the way we parse sentences affects the way we understand the relationship between the Jewish people and God. It scares me a bit to suggest that Torah is not unchanging, but we have evidence of its evolution.
1: Extraneous words and ambiguities in the Torah have led to thousands of years of discussion by Jewish thinkers. Beyond attempting to decipher narratives like the one with the Amalekites, clarification of the Jewish legal system, or halacha is a primary aspect of religious Jewish communities.
3: But when we really talk about halacha, halachic literature, we really mean the full gamut of conversations in the Jewish tradition about norms.
0: This is Rabbi Ethan Tucker, head of Yeshivat Hadar in New York City, where he spends his days teaching Jewish law,
3: or halacha. But when we really talk about halacha, halachic literature, we really mean the full gamut of conversations in the Jewish tradition about norms and about normative behavior. And that's really in some ways more akin to a language which is capable of expressing many different things, particularly because halacha, and the Jewish conversation around norms is so characteristically full of debate and discussion, and there is often a resistance to completely shutting down that discussion.
1: Ethan suggests that law is not a rigid boundary around what's right and wrong, but it's actually something that changes with the norms of the day. And as the discussion evolves, so do the laws.
3: It is the much richer normative articulation of expected behavior in a decentralized space of lots of different rabbis in lots of different places saying lots of different things. So while it doesn't mean that Anything is up for grabs, the same way you can't say anything in language. There are rules of grammar and there are uh, there are limits on what, what can be expressed. To describe halakha is just law is missing something. So I like to talk of it more as the language of Jewish normative expectation.
0: The language of Jewish normative expectation. Halakha is not the result of one clear thought at one time by one being, but a collaboration between a wide variety of different thinkers in a lot of different locations coming together to describe and create a functional society.
3: So if you really want to get a handle on all the angles you should be thinking about, all the considerations, all the mitigating factors, all the aggravating factors that go into the analysis of any mitzvah, you want to go back and essentially have a conversation with all of the people at different points in the past. The historical development for me is therefore very important because often it's only in the shift between one generation's take and a subsequent generation's take on a topic that you can actually really illuminate the issue at hand.
0: The factors that go into analyzing a mitzvah are the values manifest as the practice of that mitzvah evolves. For example, the Mishnah, the earliest rabbinic text, excludes those with a hearing impairment and who are mute from counting towards a quorum for prayer. But with the development of sign language, and the understanding that hearing impairment and muteness don't preclude intelligence or the ability to communicate, Jewish law shifted to count these people in a quorum. This later inclusion clarified that the essence of the law was about ability to communicate and not about biology. So we can see that the development of the
1: Jewish laws in different cultural contexts really illuminates the essence of the law. Here's Dr. Devorah Steinmetz.
4: My name is Devorah Steinmetz. I'm a senior faculty member at Yeshivat Hadar. I teach Talmud and Bible there.
0: Most Jewish laws are casuistic. The word casuistic is related to the word case. Jewish law is structured around different types of cases. Therefore, the laws don't explicitly say which actions are illegal the laws suggest a paradigm of thought from which we modern Jews extract meaning and we apply those values to our modern context. I think we need an example of this. Yes. A great example of the use of metaphors in Jewish law is the example of the wandering ox. Yes, the ox. Here's Devorah.
4: So for example, in the Bible, it might say something like if you see the uh, ox or the donkey of your fellow wandering, uh, you may not hide from it. You should gather it into your house until your brother seeks it.
0: So when you're out in the fields near your home and you see your brother's ox has gotten out, you've got to retrieve it and keep it safe in your home until your brother, who is obviously going to be looking for it, comes to get it. Right. Except maybe we don't live near a field. We live in a city. A big city. No fields. And maybe we don't have a brother. Well, we do have a brother, but he definitely doesn't own an ox or a donkey. In fact, our brother doesn't even live nearby, not even close. So the question is, does this scenario apply to us? Yeah, here's Devora again.
4: What that does, among other things, is um, it requires you to think in terms of analogies. You're walking along in Central Park and you find a ring. Well, that's quite different from you seeing an ox or a donkey walking along. Furthermore, if you gather that ring into your house, uh, there's a good chance that your brother or sister, as the case might be, will never come to your house to seek it because um, that person has nine million neighbors and has no idea that you've gathered uh, the ring into your house.
1: Devorah lives in New York City, so she's got 9 million neighbors. Maybe you live in a smaller city, like Hannah and I do. Maybe you only have 2 million neighbors. Or maybe you've got 10,000. The problem remains largely the same. How do you keep something safe for another human being, especially if you don't know them? And how responsible
4: are you to others? Does ox and donkey mean only ox and donkey? Does it mean any lost object? Are there limits to what lost objects require you to gather them into your house until your brother seeks it? It also requires you to um, not only extrapolate, but kind of update. You don't live in a place where you're the only neighbor within 10 miles, and so your brother knows where to seek uh, his lost donkey. You live in a place with nine million neighbors. So uh, what are you gonna do about letting the guy know that you in fact have his object?
0: So it's not really about the ox or donkey per se. It doesn't have anything to do with a field or animals or a brother. It's really about helping people find belongings that they've lost.
1: Modern legal systems really struggle to lay everything out explicitly instead of using examples like this. Tortured Legally's fine print comes from trying to be completely abstract and completely specific at the same time,
0: accounting for all of the possible factors without any ambiguity. But in the ox example, the question isn't so much legal as it is a question of humanity and communal responsibility. The law wants you to think.
4: A donkey is going to be different from an ox. It's going to be different from a sheep. It's going to be different from a chicken. It's going to be different from a ring. By being asked to draw analogies, you're being asked to think uh, about both similarities and differences.
0: The law is actually quite ambiguous. We can interpret this law in many different ways. We can take it literally to mean that if you see a wandering ox, take it in and wait for your brother to come over and get it. Or we can go the way Dvorah takes it.
4: And to really use quite a bit of judgment as to what similarities and differences might be salient uh, in terms of arriving at a decision uh, as to how to apply the law in this case. And that seems to me both kind of much truer to experience and also kind of something that requires us as human beings to, um, to really think hard and, hard and deeply um, about the uh, decisions that we're making that have an impact on, on our lives and other people's lives.
0: Devorah says that in Jewish law, unlike in the American legal system, justice is not blind.
4: In rabbinic terms, we talk about, uh, we have a phrase which says, a judge has only what's before his eyes. I think the notion is that a judge actually has to use eyes. In fact, uh, he has to use both eyes. He has to actually look closely at what's before him. And I think the notion is that, you know, obviously you want to be fair, but fairness and justice is not necessarily gotten at by blindly applying rules. Uh, but that maybe there's a, a kind of a deeper justice that you get at by trying to figure out what are the needs in front of you and trying to, uh, to get people to do the right thing.
0: The laws are set up to make us think more deeply about how we interact with our fellow human beings. We really have to think about how the laws apply to us in our lives every day. We have to decide what it means to gather a stray ox in your home. We have to decide who falls under this category of brother.
1: It's confusing, to say the least, when trying to apply these rules to modern-day situations. The literal situation, finding a wandering ox, may never apply to us, but the figurative example, finding a lost item, is almost definitely going to happen to each one of us at one point in our lives. The spirit of the law seems to say, pick it up, keep it safe, and try to get it to the owner. But ultimately, we have to choose what the law means to us. There are cases that speak to many situations, and situations that require looking at the values expressed in multiple cases. But we, as mortal beings, we are the judges. We use our eyes, perceive for ourselves, and make the determination of what to do. Deutscher, an honorary research fellow at the School of Languages, Linguistics, and Cultures at the University of Manchester, wrote an article for the New York Times in 2010 about whether our language directs the way we think about certain things. When your language routinely obliges you to specify certain types of information, he wrote, it forces you to be attentive to certain details in the world. Gendered language is a perfect example of this. In recent years, Deutscher explained, psychologists have conducted experiments to show that speakers of Spanish and speakers of German think of the same objects in very different ways. The word for bridge is feminine in German, de brücke, and masculine in Spanish, el puente. German speakers tend to describe bridges with feminine properties, like slender and elegant, while Spanish speakers tend to describe bridges with masculine properties, like strength. Language also appears to affect the way we think about colors. Deutscher says that there are radical variations in the way languages carve up the spectrum of light. For example, green and blue are distinct colors in English, but are considered shades of the same color in many languages. As strange as it may sound, thinking about color in a different way may actually affect our experience of a Chagall painting or a Van Gogh. If different words and definitions of colors change how we experience art or bridges, think about how our language changes our experience
0: of food, love, even God. The default gender of Hebrew, also a gendered language, is masculine. Though we don't think of God as a man per se, he is often described as such and translated into non gendered English as such. I am a feminist. Still, I'm one of many who often find it distracting to change references to God in traditional liturgy from masculine to feminine language. That's in part because I have a lot of the text memorized and different language catches me off guard, but primarily because it draws my attention to the gender of God, something that I don't usually consciously relate to while praying or studying. I was recently encouraged to consider, though, what it would be like if the default language used for God... Were feminine. I cannot imagine the extent of how that might differently shape our world, but it is a fairly mind-boggling proposition.
1: Language deeply affects, and perhaps determines, how we think. We were curious to explore a so-called Jewish language, a language of our own a language that gives us a sense of Jewish history, Jewish context, Jewish life. We went with an obvious choice, a language both of our grandmothers spoke growing up, Yiddish. Here's David Schneer, world-renowned Yiddish scholar.
5: My name's David Schneer. I am a professor of history and director of the program in Jewish studies at the University of Colorado at Boulder.
1: David began by telling us a short history of Yiddish.
5: So most scholars like nice round numbers. So we tend to use the number 1000 for the birthday of Yiddish. It's totally artificial because it's not like one day someone woke up in the year 1000 and said, let's all start speaking this weird Judeo-German.
1: During this time period, David says, Jews were migrating or being driven from the Kingdom of Lithuania and Poland to the area in Europe that would become Germany. Then it was called the Rhine region and it was part of the Roman Empire. Jews brought their customs and language to the German-speaking area and they began forming a sort of Judeo-German dialect. Yiddish didn't become a language officially until the 19th
5: century. Really the 19th century, when Jews start to take their quote-unquote dialect, or as some intellectuals called it, their jargon or jargon, and say, this is a real language, it needs to have its own real name. And it got the name Yiddish, which when you translate it actually into English means Jewish.
1: There evolved four dialects of Yiddish.
5: There was Western Yiddish, which existed in the Western parts of Europe all the way through the 18th century. And it actually disappeared as a language much earlier than any of the other Yiddishes, mostly because in Western Europe, Jews became emancipated much more quickly. And with emancipation came this pact or this covenant with Jews that the state would grant them civil and political rights if they would lose some of their communal and cultural distinction.
1: This sort of pact with the national government and Jews took much longer in Eastern Europe. And therefore, the remaining three dialects of Yiddish were Litvish, the Yiddish of the Jews in Lithuania, Polish or Galicianer Yiddish, the language of the Polish Jews, and the third was Ukrainian Yiddish.
5: It's a fact that from 1939 to 1945, about 6 million Jews in Europe were killed, many of whom were Yiddish speakers. To me, one of the, I guess, the saving graces about the story of modern Yiddish is that because Jews migrated so widely in the late 19th and early 20th century to places like the United States or Canada or Latin America, that the ironic twist of fate is that Yiddish got preserved globally.
1: When we began researching for this project, I'd assumed that Yiddish was a dying language. Isaac Bashevis Singer, a Yiddish short story writer who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1978, Remarked in his speech, "'People ask me often, why do you write in a dying language?' "'Firstly, I like to write ghost stories,' Singer said. "'And nothing fits a ghost better than a dying language. The deader the language, the more alive is the ghost. Ghosts love Yiddish, and as far as I know, they all speak it.'" Yiddish is not dying, but it is in fact thriving. And there's a Yiddish revival happening right now in the United States. Here's Naftali Edelman, a 25-year-old from Riverdale, New York, and founder of the Yiddish Farm, a Yiddish immersion farm in New York State.
6: It comes from my grandfather. He was a real fighter for Yiddish. His father was also (laughs) a fighter for Yiddish. After the Enlightenment, when a lot of Jewish writers started switching to Hebrew and German, they were very negative about Yiddish, and they sort of had this inferiority complex. They thought Yiddish wasn't a real language. So either they wanted to speak German, like a true European language, or go back to their Hebraic roots. As a response to that came the Yiddishist movement, which affirmed the validity of speaking Yiddish and even having literature in Yiddish. And it was very much a movement that validated what the people were speaking, the regular, simple people. And my great-grandfather was very committed Yiddishist and believed that Jews should have autonomous institutions possibly even autonomous territory, where Yiddish would be the language, Yiddish schools, Yiddish government. My grandfather followed in his footsteps and came to America and became a Yiddish professor. He made sure that all of his kids spoke Yiddish among themselves and to their kids. So all 16 of his grandchildren have Yiddish as their first language.
1: In order for Yiddish to thrive, it shifts and adjusts to modern times, just like other languages.
6: So my grandfather is very involved in creating uh, new words in Yiddish for new technologies. We call an uh, air conditioner a uh, luftkeeler, it means air cooler. Yeah. We call email "blitzpost," lightning. Microwave we call mikrochvalnik. "Chvalya" is a wave, so mikrochvalnik is uh, a microwave. Computer is computer.
1: The four Yiddish dialects have evolved different ways of speaking one language. Back to David Schneer.
5: To me, dialects are not nearly as interesting as what a dialect says about who you are and how it creates identity. Um, And in Eastern Europe, there was a presumption that Polish speakers or Galicianers, um, the positive part of a Galicianer's identity was that they were emotional, they were passionate, they were fervent about their Jewish connection they weren't necessarily the most studious. They weren't necessarily the most learned. And that has to do with the history of Judaism in the area where Galicianers were primarily chassids, which in the late 18th century was meant to be a rebellion against the sort of rarefied, frankly dull, yeshiva approach to Jewish learning, where learning is what defines someone's Jewish piety, not prayer. So the Litvaks, their plus sign is that they were smart. They were learned. They knew halakha, or Jewish law, inside and out. Did they really get into their prayer? Were they really passionate? Were they really excited? The Galicianers would say, no, they weren't. And so in Eastern Europe, when a Jew from Galicia married a Jew from Lite or Lithuania, that was considered a mixed marriage because they were from two completely different worlds. Because in their world, a Jew marrying a non-Jew didn't really exist. That's much more of a late 19th century phenomenon in Eastern Europe. So a mixed marriage was not a Jew marrying a non-Jew. It was a Galicianer marrying a Litvak.
0: Why would a Litvak parent allow their child to marry an uneducated fool? And why would a Galicianer allow their child to marry a dispassionate dud? Yiddish, like any
1: language, has always been an identity. The way you speak it, the words you speak. The language is not dying, as I'd assumed it was.
6: Since I grew up with Yiddish, I sort of see the world in a very Jewish way. And although I've had many struggles with Jewish religious dogma and how religious I want to be, I've never really had a Jewish identity struggle. Like, am I Jewish? Am I American? For me, I, it was so obvious I'm, that I'm so Jewish, no matter what I do. For me, Yiddish is everything.
1: This is Anna Kay, lifelong Yiddish speaker.
6: Yeah,
2: I love it. I go to sing something. I hope you like it.
1: Both language and law have to be flexible. They have to contort and shift with the experience and reality of new generations. The
0: Jewish identity, like Jewish law and like Jewish language, isn't fixed. We are always adapting. Norms are evolving, and new ideas are born out of ambiguities.
5: Kommt und hört zu. Jüdisches Essen vor Gedanken.
0: Come and Listen is brought to you with support from the Tikva Venture Fund, the Bronxman Youth Fellowships and Israel Alumni Venture Fund, and the Mizel Museum.
1: Thanks to Naftali Edelman, Anna Kay, David Schneer, Ethan Tucker,
0: Deborah Steinmetz, and Tsema Yoreh. Thanks also to Marilee Wallach, Ray Chi Lewis, Yoni Ashar, Annie Geimer, and Yotam Schechter-Shalomi.
1: Thanks to Andrew McGuire and Eric Kuhn for the incredible Come and Listen music.
0: Thank you to the faculty at Mahon Hadar and to our friends and family. Check us out on our website,
1: www.comeandlisten.com, where you can listen to all of our episodes and short episodes, respond to what you hear, and support this project. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, follow us on Twitter and Facebook.
0: Your hosts are Hannah Kapnick and Alyssa Kapnick. Yiddish Yiddish Curse curse off. Off As many years as you've walked on your feet, may you walk on your hands. All of your teeth should fall out except one, and in that last tooth, may you have a toothache. May you grow like an onion with your head in the ground. You should
2: swallow an umbrella, and it should open in your stomach. (laughs) i <laughs> <laughs>